0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, ICC. Um, as Pastor Chris had just mentioned in the announcements, um, starting next week, we're excited that we're sort of moving away from this uh, streaming uh, format, uh, recording the services earlier, um, and then um, streaming it out on Sundays to actually live streaming again and having a live audience here in the sanctuary. And if you were at the annual meeting, you know uh, how meaningful that is to me, um, how much I, I would rather be preaching to some of you physically. And so we really do hope that you would um, consider coming here starting next Sunday and joining us for that live worship. Um, Just as a little uh, detail in that is we've been normally streaming these services at 10 a.m., but starting next week we will be going back to our usual uh, 1130 streaming that we've been doing for the live services. And so please keep that in mind is that our service times are going to shift to 1130 starting um, next week. We are continuing on in our Bible project series, and the topic, the theme for this week, is justice. And so, why don't you uh, join with me in a word of prayer as we take a look at this topic of uh, of justice uh, together? Father, we turn to you, and we ask that you would open up our eyes to see that you are a God of justice, that your heart um, aches with justice and mercy for those who are in desperate need of it. And we pray that the distortions and the confusion that exists in our own minds as a result of maybe the way that we have come to understand this term of justice uh, would be informed by the truth of your word. And so let uh, the witness of your word speak to us about how justice ought to be even a part of our own understanding of what it means uh, to be a disciple of Jesus and to follow after your own heart. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't think I have to do a whole lot of convincing to any of us to say that um, there is this inherent self-centeredness that drives so much of what we do in life, Uh, the choices that we make, the things that we value, and on and on. And the truth is that's actually why we need a justice system and other institutions in society. It's to prevent our selfish instincts from abusing others or even taking to an extreme of destroying and undermining society itself. And we see this self centered uh, motivation start very early in life, from very young childhood, whether it's about hoarding our snacks or uh, fighting over toys. Um, And um, the question then arises is this, does this mean that all childhood behavior is driven out of this self-interest? And what our study of human behavior, especially with these young children, is revealing is that the story is actually a lot more complicated than that. Uh, In recent decades, we've learned that even young children uh, Seem to have this sense of justice in them. In one experiment, these young kids around three to six years old were paired up with each other, and then candy was distributed between the pairs. And one child was given four pieces, and the other child was just given a single piece of candy. And the child with the four pieces of candy was given the power to control the situation. They were given the decision-making power. And the choice was this. You could either accept the distribution so that you walk away with those four pieces of candy and your playmate ends up with just one. Or you could reject that distribution, in which case neither child gets any candy at all. And The assumption was that these young kids would gladly choose the acceptance scenario rather than rejecting it, and neither kid gets anything. Uh, But to the surprise of the researchers, what they discovered was that these children often chose to reject the distribution that was given. In other words, they would rather give up their four pieces of candy rather than, um, and, and basically walk away with neither kid getting anything than to take that four pieces to discover that that other child only got one piece of candy. In another experiment, preschoolers were placed in another situation where there was one puppet that would steal a treat from either that child or another puppet. And then um, the child was given an opportunity to sort of right that wrong and correct things. And it really didn't surprise researchers to discover that more often than not, uh, given the opportunity, that child would um, correct the situation if that puppet stole the treat from them. But what did surprise the researchers was that children were also almost just as likely to correct the injustice if it was done against that other puppet and not themselves. In other words... It wasn't about the fact that they felt that they were robbed of that piece of candy, but it was more of some kind of a a broader understanding of justice, now this time against someone else that they felt the burden to correct. There's even this other uh, situation where um, this one puppet does something bad, evil, and then um, the children are given the opportunity to pay tokens, to either watch that bad puppet being punished or watch some other random puppet being punished. And what's interesting is that by far the kids paid tokens to watch the bad puppet being punished. It it kind of makes you wonder what other kind of crazy experiments researchers are doing with our children, you know. Uh, I think every parent is familiar with that indignant cry of their children, that's not fair. And of course, even this demand for fairness can be driven by selfish motives. There's no doubt about it. But evidence suggests that there is also a genuine seeking of justice that is occurring in kids when they're complaining about a lack of fairness. What's really amazing is that even babies seem to have some kind of an inherent sense of justice, built into them. They took one and a half year old babies and they let them watch two different scenarios. In one scenario, the puppets that they were shown each received an equal number of toys or treats. In the second scenario, one puppet got all of the toys or treats and the other puppet got none. And they just filmed the eye contact of these babies and what they discovered is that these babies stared far longer significantly longer at that scenario where one of the puppets got all of the treats or toys and not the other way around previous studies have clearly established that babies pay attention longer to things that either surprise them or violate their expectations and so what the re- what happened as a result of the study was that researchers were led to believe that children are born with at least some rudimentary or basic notion of justice or fairness. Now, this sense of justice and fairness is unique to humanity. The rest of creation does not operate in any sense of justice. It is basically in the animal kingdom, kill or be killed, eat, or be eaten. Poet Annie Dillard observed firsthand the brutality of nature uh, at her home in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And she wrote in an article in The Atlantic back in 1973, there is not a people in the world that behaves as badly as praying mantises. But wait, you say, there is no right and wrong in nature. Right and wrong is a human concept. Precisely. We are moral creatures then In an amoral world. What Dillard is saying is that there is no justice when you observe nature. It's brutal. It is deadly. There's something so uniquely human about the seeking of fairness and justice. And on the other hand, you could say that there is not a single human society on earth that doesn't have some system of morality and particularly some concept of justice. It's sown into our very nature. And the question is, why is that? Where does that universal sense of justice come from? Well, I think the Bible would argue that it is something God-given as a reflection of the fact that we are all made in the image of God. And yet, this is the problem. What does justice even mean? How do we define justice? justice. What may seem like justice to one person may not seem like justice to another. Harvard Law Professor Michael uh, Sandel outlines three of the most prevalent views of justice in our day. The first one he calls maximizing welfare. In other words, justice under this view is about equality, seeking the greatest good for the greatest number of people. The maximizing welfare view of justice is about seeking a fair distribution of resources to as many people as possible. It's a utilitarian argument, in essence, that says that the most important thing is the outcome of those choices that we make. Okay? The greatest happiness for the most people. The consequence of that just decision is what's important. The second view of justice is what, we, what he calls respecting freedom. Respecting freedom. In this view, justice is done when the freedom and rights of the individual are upheld. That's justice. Another way to think about it is that injustice occurs when the state or any other institution infringes on the liberties of the individual to do as they desire. This is what we could think of as a libertarian view of justice. And it's primarily about the protection of human freedom and individual rights. Sandel calls the last view of justice promoting virtue. Promoting virtue. In this view of justice, the consequences of our choices or respecting our freedom are not the most important factors that come to play here. There are deeper obligations that we have to to virtue and morality, Uh, these are the things that have to be honored, regardless of what the consequences of the individual choices may be. In other words, a just society is one that abides by a higher moral standard, by virtue, right and wrong. If all of that confuses you, um, let me just uh, play out a scenario for you um, to and then apply each one of these views of justice to that scenario. During the pandemic, uh, this scene of empty shelves in the cleaning products aisle of most stores has become all too familiar to most of us. Even to this day, I mean, when I go to Target or Walmart, uh, I still can't find some of the cleaning products that I need. Because the shelves are still regularly empty even months and months into this pandemic. And one of the reasons for this shortage is that the truth is some people are hoarding these supplies. Out of fear of not having enough for their own family. But the truth is that we also know that there are some people that are cleaning out entire stores of these products. And they are doing this in order to sell them at a huge markup. Uh, on sites like Amazon and other online retailers. I mean, I just discovered this this last week, but this packet of uh, hand soap dispensers that pre-pandemic I had bought for $20 is listed on Amazon right now for $80, and that's insane. And here is the question, is what is the just thing to do in this situation? Well, the utilitarian maximizing welfare view of justice may argue that, you know, the stores need to step in here and they need to put a limit on the amounts that people can buy of these cleaning products so that no single customer can monopolize that and there will be enough for everyone. Not only that, but those that hold to this utilitarian view of justice would even argue, hey, the government needs to step in. And they need to, you know, basically utilize anti-price-gouging laws to punish those who are reselling these items at a, for a huge profit. If you hold to a respecting freedom view of justice, you would probably argue the opposite. You would say, leave these people alone. Let the free market fix this problem. After all, if the prices soar for these items... Won't that incentivize manufacturers to ship even more of these items as aggressively and quickly as they can in order to meet that increased demand? You know, it'll, the free market will correct itself and fix this problem while not impinging on the freedom of individuals. The promoting virtue camp may argue, well, you know, that kind of greed and hoarding at the expense of others is immoral, and therefore, it has to be checked as a matter of principle, as a matter of morality. And so as you think about all of these arguments, you know, you're kind of left to this question then is, what is the biblical view of justice? What is the biblical view of justice? What would the Bible say to that situation? And here's the thing, is when you study this idea of justice in the Bible, it doesn't fit neatly into any single one of those prevailing views. Instead, the Bible invites us to see justice in its own unique perspective. And as the Bible project video that you just watched pointed out, the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. It occurs over 400 times in the Old Testament. And more than any singular person, that word mishpat or justice is used in the Old Testament to refer to God himself. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 to 24, it says, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have understa- understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. And so what God is declaring through the prophet Jeremiah is that in his, in its, his most uh, essential nature, God is a God of justice. And the other word that is often associated with justice, which is found in these verses as well, is the word righteousness. Righteousness and justice occur together over 130 times in the Bible. When we think of righteousness, we usually associate it with some kind of a sense of personal morality, of measuring up to some moral standard or having even maybe a right standing with God. But when the Bible speaks of righteousness, it most often describes it in terms of having right relationships with others. That's how the Bible primarily defines righteousness. In other words, Righteousness isn't just some kind of an internal standard that you've chosen to live yourself by, uh, by which you've chosen to live by, but it is really actually revealing how do I treat the people around me. It's all about, in other words, your relationships with others. Look at the description of the righteous person described by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18 verse 5 and then verse 7 to 9. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest or take a profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Do you see how the description of justice and righteousness are almost completely focused on the way that we treat others? In other words, it's the, it's the kind of relationship that we have with them that reveals whether God judges us as one who is just and righteous. You know about 10% of the time that word mishpat or justice refers to what is known as retributive justice. This is justice carried out by a judge. This is righting a wrong of punishing the evildoer or the wrongdoer. So that's the, actually the type of justice that we most often think about when we think about justice. But here is the thing. 90% of the time it actually refers to restorative justice in the Bible. This is a justice that operates at a much broader level than retributive justice, because restorative justice is a proactive justice that seeks equality and dignity, particularly for those who are the most vulnerable to be abused, uh, to abuse in society. I think it's classically illustrated in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 8 to 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. This is not just simply justice that is waiting for a crime to be committed so that the wrongdoer can be punished. It's about proactively defending the rights of those who are voiceless in society and caring for the poor and needy among us. And that's the problem is when we think of justice, we naturally go to that retributive justice, the justice of a courtroom. But nine out of ten times when the Bible talks about justice, it's actually referring to this restorative justice that actually pursues people and seeks their good. And this is not the usual way that we think about justice. But it is the primary way that the Bible talks about justice. Job chapter 29, verse 14 to 17. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Job is describing his own righteousness as just and justice as one that is actively pursuing the needy and taking their troubles as his own that's how job describes righteousness and justice zechariah chapter 7 verse 8 and the word of the lord came again to zechariah this is what the lord almighty said administer true justice Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. The widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the poor. These are the four groups of people that come up over and over again when it comes to matters of justice in the Bible. And why is that? It's because these are the types of people whose rights are most easily trampled on in society, who are least able to look after themselves. And so God says, if you want to be a person who exhibits the heart of justice, those are the kind of people that you have to actively pursue to help in their times of need. Psalm 146, verse 6 to 9. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow but it frustrates the way of the wicked. You know, it's interesting. Why in the world would God describe giving sight to the blind as justice, as a matter of justice? It's, if we only understand justice as punishing wrongdoers, it makes no sense. God's justice, though, as we see throughout the witness of Scripture, is that it goes so much further than simply righting a wrong or punishing after the fact. It is a restorative justice that seeks to bring goodness and mercy to those who are denied the privileges that those in power enjoy. And notice again the categories of the people that God is singling out here. The oppressed, the prisoner, the sick, the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. Again, these are all people who are desperate for someone who will stand in the gap on their behalf and mediate for them, advocating for their needs. And God says, if you know my heart, then that is the role that you will play in society for these people that are most downtrodden, are most suffering in your society. God tells us that that is his heart for them and therefore he calls his people to display that same passion for restorative justice in their lives. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love merc- uh, kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's the command of God to his people. Do justice. Show kindness or mercy. That means look at those who are living in great difficulty among you, in desperate situations, and act in their favor. Carry their burdens. Make their problems your problems. And shoulder that responsibility on yourself. You know, one of the great revolutionary teachings of the Bible is that every human being has equal dignity and worth because we are all made in the image of God. And I want to make this absolutely clear. This view of humanity was totally unique in ancient times because the vast majority of cultures... Categorized people according to the different levels of status and worth in society. And at the top, you had royalty and then the nobility. And then came commoners. And at the very bottom were servants and slaves who were considered of almost subhuman value in society. They were often treated more like property than as people. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, though, this is what God says. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. In other words, God declares that the taking of any human life is a capital offense. Because every person is made in the image of God. In other words, in God's eyes, there is no bell curve when it comes to human dignity and value. Everyone is seen in his eyes as of equal value. And this is the foundation of the Bible's view of justice. All of us are created equal in the eyes of God and therefore are worthy of the same dignity and rights as everyone else. But here is the truth. Most of us don't actually view others in that lens, do we? The truth is we do tend to judge the worth of people based on all kinds of criteria. Maybe their ethnicity. Are they like us? Maybe their socioeconomic status. Or whatever other markers that basically tell us whether this person is deserving of our attention or our friendship, or our love. James chapter 3, verse 9, it says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. In other words, James is calling out Christians on the way that we tend to despise other people, pointing out that the problem is that we don't truly see them as ones who are made in the image of God. And deserving of our dignity. He says, yeah, you you worship God and you love him. But this is how you treat other people. And I want to simply ask, how about you? How about you? What is the lens through which you view others? Especially those who are not like you. Or those who are struggling just to make it in life. How do you feel when you drive past somebody who's holding a sign at an intersection or at a red light asking for help? In truth, do you tend to look down on them, thinking that they deserve that lot in life? Because maybe you think they're lazy or they just made bad choices for their lives. And here's the truth. Maybe they are where they are because of some pretty bad choices that they've made. But do you believe that they are nevertheless still made in the image of God and therefore deserving of the same dignity that you would offer to your closest friends and people that you respect in your life? Because that's how God sees them. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Our search for biblical justice has to start here in our own hearts. Do you see people the way that God sees people? How do you assign worth to an individual? The prophet Isaiah looked ahead to the day when God would send a king from the line of David. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 4, it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. This is a prophecy by Isaiah that was looking ahead to Jesus, who is described as one who will bring justice and righteousness for the poor and needy of the earth. And what the Gospels and the New Testament tell us is that the cross then is the embodiment of this justice of God that was found throughout the Old Testament. And again, we are so tempted to only see it through the framework of a retributive justice. But I don't know how many of us actually look at the cross through the lens of a restorative justice. Because on the cross, Jesus took our debt upon himself and showed the richness of his mercy even though we did not deserve it. He took the burden of our sin on himself and gave his life so that we could be set free from the bondage of our idolatries and have a relationship with God. And this is not necessarily to be seen only as the writing of a wrongdoing, but as the giving of a mercy to undeserved people who were in need of that mercy. That's restorative justice. In other words, we were the needy ones who received that justice of God. We were the prisoner who was set free. We were the poor ones who were made rich because of his self-giving love. And that is God's definition of justice. And so as recipients of God's restorative justice, Jesus calls us to a ministry of restorative justice and mercy to the needy around us. What I'm saying is this. Our ministry of justice and mercy to others has to be understood in light of that meaning of the cross as God's own restorative mercy and justice to us who were undeserving when we were in our greatest moment of need in our life that's the logic of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 where he says for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. We, in our own instinct, would not define justice like that. But what the Bible tells us, that exactly is justice that God is enacting, the justice of the cross, of him taking our burdens upon himself, that we might know the freedom and the joy of life with him. And that's why Jesus tells us, Uh, This story in Luke chapter 14, verse 12 to 14. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The righteous. In other words, Jesus is saying, those are my kingdom priorities, and that's the kingdom that I have come to bring to this earth. As my followers mirror my own heart in that way, and go to those who are most on the extremes and margins of society and show them care and dignity and love. And here is the thing. I think the truth is as Christians, we don't take any of this very seriously at all. I mean, what do you make of teaching like this? Is there even the slightest hint of guilt in your heart that you're not doing this? I think we read a story like that and we just turn it into some type of a platitude about, oh, yeah, that's the kind of kindness we ought to hold somewhere mysteriously in our heart. But I don't think that we actually have any even slightest intention of saying, I've got to live that out in my life if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would hearken the guess that none of us hardly have done anything to try to obey that teaching. James 1.27 says this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Do you understand what is being said in these verses? And if you do, is there any sense in which you take that teaching seriously. I think if we're really honest about it, the church puts a lot of attention into the keeping oneself polluted from the world part of that teaching. But when it comes to widows and orphans, I don't know. What do you even do with that, right? Scott McKnight in his book, The Blue Parakeet, writes in response to his own reflection on the way that the church has understood James one twenty-seven. And he says, for James, a pure Christian, the kind God approves of, was one who showed compassion to orphans and widows and avoided being polluted by sin at all costs. Frankly, we emphasized the not being polluted by sin, but we defined polluted in ways that had nothing to do with compassion for the marginalized and suffering. For instance, We were dead set against movies, drinking wine, and sex before marriage. But the one thing we didn't do was follow everything James said. As I kept looking around me, this began to disturb me. How in the world were we reading the same Bible? One thing was clear. We were all reading the Bible the same way. And that meant we had somehow learned not to follow the plain words of James. What I learned was an uncomfortable but incredibly intriguing truth. Every one of us adopts the Bible and at the same time adapts the Bible to our culture. In less appreciated terms, I'll put it this way. Everyone picks and chooses What McKnight is getting at is this. By what logic do we excuse ourselves from any sense of obligation to follow this teaching that is so prevalent in Scripture? About the people of God being marked as ones that are living out restorative justice in society and caring for the least of these. And looking after the prisoner, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the refugee, everyone who is in dire need of help. I wasn't sure I wanted to share this, but I think I'm going to. But, I mean, a recent survey just came out that showed that of all the demographics in America, evangelical Christians were the most likely to say that America has no obligation to shelter refugees and people seeking asylum. People who declared that they had no affiliation with religion were twice as likely as Christians to say that America has that obligation. What has gone wrong with our country? What has gone wrong with the church in America that we can say something like that? By what logic do we so glibly pass over scriptures like this without even the hint of guilt that this is supposed to be a hallmark of the life of a Christian is that we care for the least of these and the ones that are least able to speak for themselves and look after themselves in society. One of the things that I really came to recognize is that we live in such a segregated society in America. When I lived in Kenya as a missionary for five years, regardless of what your socioeconomic status was or what tribe you came from or whatever, yeah, you end up sort of in this village all living side by side with each other. But in America, we're just so divided into these cities and suburbs and then within that, these subdivisions. And the truth is, you can live in utter bliss and ignorance in America, never coming into any proximity with genuine need of a prisoner, of a teen mom struggling with an unwanted pregnancy, of a panhandler begging for a dollar at a street corner. Life in suburban America affords you the luxury of not having to rub shoulders with the least of these. And the truth is, apathy is so easy, isn't it? When you have all of your own needs met, it is so easy to disregard the needs of other people. But what the witness of Scripture tells us over and over again is that the heart of God is one of justice. And even as we have received that mercy and love and justice from God, he is calling us to live out that same justice to others. I do actually believe that one of the beautiful ways that that was displayed at ICC, as was brought up during the uh, annual meeting last week, was in this benevolence fund, as a number of you gave very generously to help financially for those in our church, in our midst, who are really struggling financially. And I also shared in last week's annual meeting about an exciting new uh, initiative that we're doing with this food pantry that we'll be starting. And listen, uh, to run this pantry, it's going to require sacrifice from us. It's going to take money. It may involve you giving up a Saturday morning once a month when you could be watching your kids' sports or doing something else with your leisure time. But my sincere hope as your pastor is that in these coming years, this is an area of discipleship that ICC is really going to grow into. My sincere hope is that this is a spiritual muscle that we're all going to exercise and take seriously this abundant witness of Scripture that tells us that the God that we worship is a God of justice. And his calling on every one of our lives is to represent that heart of justice in the way that we treat the least of these in our society, in our neighborhoods, in our streets, in our world all around us. And the only way that we can do that is if we first understand that this is what God did for us. On the cross of Christ, he gave to us a mercy that we needed so desperately. And when we really understand the meaning of that cross and understand the justice that God showed us, we can become representatives of that same justice and mercy and righteousness to others, At this time, I'm going to invite you to come to the Lord's table as we've been doing each week. And if you have your elements ready with you, I invite you to get those. And as we come to the table, I want you to reflect on what the meaning of this ceremony represents, this means of grace of coming to the Lord's table. Because as we take of it, the message that Jesus gave to the first disciples is, this is my broken body and my shed blood given to you. When you were the one that was in desperate need, when you were the one that was living a life separated from God because of your sins, when you were living under the weight of the guilt of your own rebellion against God, Jesus, in the most amazing act of justice and mercy, Went to the cross and shouldered that burden on himself for us. And so, as we take from this bread and take from this cup, my sincere hope is that you would meditate on the power of that truth. And as you do so, that what would come out of it would therefore then be if this is what God has done for me, how can I show the same mercy and justice? to others around me. and So let me invite you first to take from the bread and then secondly to take from the cup and then just pray for a couple minutes. I'll close us in a word of prayer as we then will go and sing one final song of response.